Peter, which is going to be almost all the way to the right of your Bible, page 1018 in some of the Black Bibles. This is Second Peter chapter one, verse sixteen through twenty-one. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to, or pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father God, we want to take a moment and reflect on the very word that you communicate to us. It is your scripture. Lord, we're not a church that believes that that's the only way you communicate. In fact, we believe that you are speaking loudly, just as we just sang, in every facet of creation, and you're speaking through natural ways and supernatural ways and, and communicating regularly to your people, to your children. But we also don't want to devalue the beauty of a message that has been passed down and is delivered to us that we can put the weight of eternity on. But Lord, that is a big claim. It's a lofty claim. And so I pray that you would help us in this moment receive a level of clarity to how this book has come to be and why we hold it as unique, inspired, and authoritative. I know there's a a whole lot of information here uh, to get through this morning, so I pray that your spirit would be bringing what is needed and bringing what is clear so that we could leave here in a bigger awe of who you are and what you've come to do and how you have communicated and how you have not written things in clouds, but have used the messy process of your people. Lord, your spirit is welcome, and we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, as I said, I am Kent, and I'm going to preface this uh, sermon moment today uh, because uh, I had surgery this week. Uh, That's why I have a stool up here. Should I I need it to either sit or just stable myself or something? Um, And I'm going to be hobbling uh, if I move at all, or maybe I'll just stand very stationary right here. Um, the joys of getting older, I had to uh, repair a hernia, which I've learned a couple things about myself uh, this week. One is that I've lost all embarrassment about talking publicly about a hernia. And the <laughs> second is that it was actually, uh, the doctor uh, let me know that, let my wife know when I was uh, coming to, that it actually was not a broken muscle, it was just a, a, a gap that was probably uh, there since birth, uh, birth defects, you could say. Uh, so, you know, it was just a matter of time, but or something squished out of there, and so uh, either way, I got mesh now, and I've just been uh, trying to 
I've actually like am feeling pretty decent on the recovery. Uh, I am not actively on painkillers in this moment, which I did not know if that was going to be the case or not. Um, and not even like ibuprofen at this point. I, like, even yesterday, I had officiated a wedding yesterday. To my memory, I, I think they're married. And, <laughs> but now in this moment, um, and, you know, I, I'm not even on the high-level ibuprofen. Uh, now, I do definitely feel like some general light-headedness towards the lasting effects of anesthesia. And my filter is probably a little bit lower, which if you've been around some of her a while, that's saying something. And uh, so, you know, Jeremy Hampton, even who talked to me through this, he's a doctor. He helped me connect with a surgeon to do this. And he was, uh, I was just updating on how it went and kind of how it was. And he's like, I can't wait for this on Sunday. Uh, and he said he'd be taking bets on over under when I would hit some phrase or word or, or story that I might be fired for. Um, and then a total of how many I would say throughout the course of the morning. So... Uh, I don't know if he's still here, but I'm sure you can text him if you'd like to get in on that. Uh, the good news is, is my wife and uh, kids are all up in Chicago for a shower. So while I could lose my job as early as this afternoon, my marriage will probably still be intact through the day. So, good news. And that could have been the moment right there. Maybe that's it, you know? Who knows? Um, either way. Um, well, I want to reintroduce the series that we just started last week, which is the part of our larger movement that we'll be doing over the course of years of doing spiritual formation and dropping in regularly with mini-series on practices and how the church has regularly uh, participated throughout centuries and tradition and, and, and following the way of Jesus and forming themselves into the, the lifestyle, the personhood, the inner, outer effects of who Jesus is, shaping ourselves in the image of Jesus. As we've been saying through this series, we want to put up before us all a concept of practicing the way of Jesus for the life of the world together. And so as we regularly do the three-part steps as we've laid out of, of being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and doing what Jesus did, we just want to come and say, like, hey, here's a tool that the church has used historically. And, and we're now entered, uh, in the third of these series, and we're entering maybe where most people thought we might have started, which is with Scripture. How does Scripture play into our formation? There's a very intentional choice to not start with scripture, mainly because I think as a culture, we're really good at scripture in some way, shape, or form. Like, that's probably the one thing that people are like, oh, I don't do a lot of contemplative silent prayer Sabbath, but I can do scripture, you know, uh, at least on some level. But while we wanted to not start there for just the sake of like not re-emphasizing that many of us already feel, that's the, the first and only thing I really need to be doing. We want to so know it's a really wide. I mean, you're going to see over the next uh, a couple years here, there's a lot of different areas you can go, some very much so in our, our wheelhouse of a Western rational mindset, and some very uncomfortable for uh, those who are not concerned with more mystic and, and uh, Eastern uh, ways that the church has practiced the way of Jesus. I mean, we're not just going straight up New Age spirituality. Uh, this is ways that are still within the tradition of church and even born out of the life of Jesus himself. But man, if you just even fall after Jesus, he did some crazy stuff. You're like, okay, can I really heal people? Well, we'll get there. Um, but regardless, we're starting with Scripture. And we're starting, or we're uh, continuing on with it. And last week, and this week, both are less sermons than they are lectures. And some of you have mentioned, like, this has been really exciting for you. You're like, I love learning. I love the information. I love the download. I mean, last week was really a lecture on philosophy and epistemology, and epistemology being the philosophical way of how do we know what we know, and, and how have we become conscious or subconsciously understanding truth. 
And there's multiple ways you can build epistemology, and I tried to lay out for you how through the Renaissance and the Enlightenment we have gotten to a very common epistemology now in our day, which, which sees ourselves as conscious observers and, and trying to understand the world by uh, stepping back and observing something and trying to research it, study it, mark it, chop it up, write about it, and find the essential truth and then enter in to reality now equipped with that essential truth. And while that's a really fantastic way to find a lot of truth about the way that God has designed this world and, and used this world, it's not only not the only way to discern truth, it in many cases is actually a faulty way. And we've seen now through the deconstruction, or, uh, yeah, the deconstruction of modernism and the postmodernism and, and even just the idea of relativity and all these things throughout our, 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 our science and our philosophy that we've come to understand still much mysteriously so, but a little bit more as we've done that, we realize, hey, there's, there's some gifts that our, our, our way of understanding the world has and brings to the equation. But then there's also ways that we need to learn to accept a different way of even thinking, even understanding. And the Bible actually presents one. The Bible presents itself as saying, hey, you're, you're never going to come to this book and just sit on the outside and be a passive observer and wait for it to answer all 42 of your questions on your platform. But rather, Jesus and all the writers are going to continually write in a way that is experiential and invitational to participate, to join in the way of Jesus, to step into living as he called us to live. And, and as we do that, he says, hey, assess for yourself. Is this the way of wisdom? Is this the way that humanity was designed? Were you truly designed to get everything for yourself and build a life so that you could be consuming more, or were you made to lay down your life for others, and you actually might find life that way? It's a big risk, because if it's wrong, you lay down your life. But if it's right, you actually find it. And so he says, no, I want you to participate, and you'll understand the way that I've baked wisdom into every creative facet in the world, again, as we just sang. But this week, before we kind of get into really a lot more of the, the meat of the series, I want to do another intro-level again, lecture, of if we're going to talk about the Bible, if we're going to talk about these books, these 66 books and these words from these authors, and then there's a lot of questions that we should probably have straight because I think there's a lot of questions that I think you've asked about the Bible. Maybe you're currently asking. And if not you, you definitely know some friend or family member that's asked the questions of the Bible. And so I'd rather just run right at it and let's look into... Questions like, how in the heck do we get this book in its present form? And how do we have great confidence that it passed successfully over multiple centuries and multiple cultures and multiple times, and that we actually have the accurate words that are in this Bible? How do we know that this, why this Bible we see is uniquely designed and, and spoken by God? but yet also through human authors. What does that mean? How do we choose the books? I mean, there's, it could go on and on. And I, I want to get to as many of these as I possibly can, but I at least want to hit some of the big ones. And I'll say up front, this could be like a six-hour lecture series. I probably listened to that many hours of lecture this week uh, in preparation for this. And so there's a whole lot that I'm going to have to leave on the cutting room floor to just try to get some bare essentials for our time right here because my surgery makes uh, something swell in my bladder. I only have so much time. And either way, I, I have to, uh, to cut quite a bit. But something happened. All right. All right. Uh, Tayshawn will go check it out. 
Uh, <laughs> all right, thanks, man. Um, either way, uh, so there's a lot that we have to cut. There's a lot we have to leave behind. But let me at least ask you to do this. If, we, if I don't get to your question, if I don't get to your concern, I would ask you two things. One, go on this journey yourself. All this information I'm finding is, is interactive and public and, and written about. I mean, you might have to get into some really nerdy volumes on Greek language and Hebrew and all this stuff, but it's there. And then secondly, don't assume that there's no answer. Assume that maybe there's a much more complex answer than you're even aware of. Because there's multiple ways to go about seeing the scriptures, and a lot of people, I mean, I've heard people kind of make mention of like, well, like, when they canonized this thing, when they picked these books, I mean, they left a lot of books out, and who chose that? I mean, you know, actually, who I heard chose that was like angry warlords, I mean, just men that were hell-bent on power, led by Constantine, the new emperor of Rome, who wanted to make Christianity the official religion in Rome, so he could subdue the people. In order to do that, he had to make Jesus God, and so it wasn't, you know, like, we didn't make God, or God didn't make us in his image. We made him in ours, and we just said, no, like, Jesus is now God, and now forever since, like, 325, uh, now we have a, a divine Jesus. Or you get like the idea of like, man, then, you know, the King James Version in the, the Middle Ages all of a sudden starts translating the Bible and they're just playing fast and loose all over the place. And so I really got distorted there. And again, we go for all these translations, all these languages, all these cultures. And you get a picture that this has come to you like a version of the telephone game. And we all know if we went through elementary school, at one point you sat in the line because your teachers were just trying to keep you quiet for five minutes. And so they said, hey, somebody on that end of the line, think of a phrase and pass it down and whisper it in the person's ear. And as it goes along, at the end, the last person will stand up and declare the phrase. And if it was mainly deviant children involved, it would just be a creative strew of swear words at the end of it because they just decided, I don't care what the phrase is. I'm saying this. And if they were, even though earnest and do-gooder children sitting there being like, man, guys, come on, let's focus. Let's, you only get to say it once, so listen and hear and pass it along. And, and even in that time, often, more times than not, when that phrase is re-uttered, it might sound like some of the rhyming phrases that were said, but the meaning is completely different. So how do we, how do we not know that we're reading a really long, distorted version of the telephone game? That's ultimately what I saw a lot of people wrestle with when I was a, uh, doing campus ministry uh, on Butler and IPY and, and UND's campus. There would always be a point in the year where the students that I'd built a really strong relationship with, one of them would be taking the Bible as, as literature or some version of that. Um, and they would always come to me, you could just pick the week where they'd be like, man, we just totally just tore to shreds the Bible today. And man, like, now with all this information that I was never told at my church, I was just said like, well, the Bible's true. Well, how do I know the Bible's true? The Bible says it's true. Okay, that doesn't help. And now all of a sudden I'm interacting with real textual scholars that are bringing up some real facts. And let me tell you, I'm going to try to bring up as many of them that are real. And now I'm just getting really to the point of, I can't trust this is inspired. I can't even trust this is true. You get people like the, the Jesus Seminar which is a collection of scholars for the last 50 years have been voting on the New Testament, primarily the, the Gospels, the biographical accounts of Jesus, and just taking beads, red. They would cast a red bead if they said, hey, this is, Jesus said this or did this. Or they'd do a pink bead if, well, Jesus didn't do or say exactly that, but this is 
the sentiment is accurate. Or a gray or black bead, meaning more towards there's very little confidence or none at all that this is true. And after about 50 years, they've determined that 18% of those four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is what they would deem as accurate. And only like, it's actually one verse in the book of John. And it's not even like a, a really helpful verse. It was like, Jesus is like, what? And that was it. And they're like, yeah, that probably happened. But, you know, everything else is suspect. And then you get the Da Vinci Code, which came out and was popular when I was in college. And this just freaked everybody out, because now you got Dan Brown and this character who's like a, a scholarly character, and he's talking about, and he, I mean, he says this at one point. He says, the Bible did not arrive by facts from heaven. The Bible is a product of man, my dear, not of God. The Bible did not fall magically from the clouds. Man created it as a historical record of tumultuous times, and it has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of this book. And then you get Bart Ehrman, who's written multiple books, um, maybe most famously misquoting Jesus, who changed the Bible and why. And he promoted it several times on The Daily Show and Colbert Report. And they just went on and said things like this in the interview. He said, not only do we not have the originals, the originals of like the original text of these books, which is true, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. Now, I'll say those back two statements, the copies, the copies, and beyond, we don't know if that's true. I don't think he knows. I don't think anyone would, would say with any certainty that that's a, a verifiable statement. But the first two, the, we don't have the copies, and, and we don't knowingly have the first, we don't have the original, we don't knowingly have the first copies. And so he went on to say, like, how can we have any confidence of the reliability of this text? And he went up to bring about the fact that there's something in textual criticism that has emerged in the last 50-ish years where they have studied variants. A variant is a word or a letter or a phrase that appears in one manuscript of the Bible and does or does not in another manuscript of the Bible. He said, do you want to know the most scary fact of all this? He said there's 400,000 variants in the Greek New Testament alone. There's only about 140,000 words total. In fact, I know the exact number. There are 138,162 words in your Greek New Testament and 400,000 variants. If you're doing the math, that's 2.5 variants per word. He said on the middle of the Daily Show, he said that we have more variants, variants than we have words. Now, if we stopped here, if I was like, sorry, guys, surgery's hitting my bladder, I got to go, like, this would be really despairing. But the information goes a lot farther than that. In fact, there's a whole lot more we do know. And, and I just want to say up front, I'm not basing this off of my PhD work that I've been doing secretly on textual criticism. I have no real scholarly merit in textual criticism, and so I will just put those cards before you. But I am going to rely primarily on the work of two PhDs in this area. Uh, Daniel B. Wallace, who is uh, a doctorate uh, in this work uh, at Dallas Theological Seminary. He's one of the leading uh, Greek language manuscript scholars. And then secondly, Dr. Tim Mackey, uh, you'll be familiar with his work with the Bible Project, who also his PhD is in Hebrew manuscript transmission, particularly in a, the 
he did a project, the first of its kind for the book of Ezekiel. He translated and, and compared all of the variants in the book of Ezekiel. And he does this across the, all the Bible. That would just be the one he's most primarily familiar with with his doctoral work. But again, I, I, all this information these men have written upon or made lectures about, and, and they're going to quote multiple scholars who have written upon this as well. I'm also going to attempt to not do the opposite of the despairing side, because these, both these guys will be like, hey, that's, that's not a place you should go, just total despair. How could we ever know what was actually true about this book? But he said, here's the other place you shouldn't go, that, that there was some sort of golden tablets dropped down from heaven. He said, no, that's, that's not a, a wise place to be either. You need to understand that, I'll borrow this from Mackie. He, uh, he uses a, an M.C. Escher drawing or painting, which M.C. Escher is known for doing a lot of optical illusions. Could you bring that up? Thank you. And this was one of his most famous one called Drawing Hands. And of course, the big question is which hand is real, which hand is drawing, and, and really, they're both, they're both real, they're both drawing, or they're both not real, they're both not drawing. I mean, you don't really know. It's meant to be intentionally ambiguous. This is actually a better accurate description of how we've received the scriptures than the telephone game. If you picture one of those hands being a divine hand, the hand of God writing the text, but just as real, just as tangibly, just as much a part of that process as the human hand of each author, the scribe, whoever was taking this down, we have had this book delivered to us simultaneously through God moving the pen, but he didn't do it like all of a sudden put Paul in a trance and he woke up and like, what are all this papyrus here? Like, you know, it's not like that moment. He just, he works through the real experiences and the real memories and the real teachings and the real moments of someone saying, I've got to tell the Colossians about that. But they start to recognize that, hey, we're, we're forming eyewitness testimony, both in the New Testament and the Old Testament to find something that is, is fully human and fully divine. And I want to make a case for that. So uh, here I go. And uh, I'm going to drop just a ton of information on you. Um, again, if you're like, you want to dive into all this, I can give you, you can come up and talk to me. I can give you lectures. I can give you books. Uh, I can give you some names to Google and everything and poke around. Uh, I'm going to do my best to present both um, conservative and liberal orthodox scholarship because I don't want this to just be like, well, you've got a confirmation bias. I admit I do. But I also wanted to, I will show you, I've really tried to wrestle with people that are like, well, that's, that's a scary thing, and I've got to look into that, and I've got to figure out what it's saying. So I'm going to try to do the best I can for you and all that today. So uh, first place to start, do we have any original book or letter or revelation prophecy in our Bible? Like, do we, I mean, obviously this isn't it, but is it transcribed from an original anywhere? The answer to that is no. We don't have a single original. That's a true statement, and mainly it's because I'm mainly going to be dealing with the New Testament for sake of time. I'll touch the Old Testament at the very end. They're two wildly different stories, but they have a similar ending. Either way, with the New Testament, we have all those that were originally written on papyrus. And papyrus is an extremely brittle material, particularly after about 100 to 200 years. So we probably, you know, there were probably original copies uh, in circulation, or original writings in circulation for about 100 to 200 years beyond the life and death of Jesus. Uh, in, the, in the time when his followers decided to write about it. But all that's turned to dust. 
The only papyrus that we found from ancient times is found in extremely dry climates like the, uh, yeah, the Dead Sea or different areas that are just like, have almost no moisture to them whatsoever. And their papyrus has been literally somewhat been able to be preserved. But beyond that, no, we don't have any originals. And then second scary thing to know, um, all the manuscripts we do have, and that's what I'm going to be calling all the copies. That's how they're referred to as manuscripts. Why? Because they are written by hand. They are scripts taken down by hand. We don't have the printing press, of course. So if you want to make a copy of something, you have to hand write it, word for word, letter for letter, phrase by phrase. And so do any of the manuscripts completely agree? No. We don't have two manuscripts that line up in just a way that like, wow, these things are just letter for letter. In fact, our two oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the old, or sorry, the New Testament, disagree on average six to ten times per chapter. And if you take that over the course of 260 chapters of the New Testament, that's about 2,000 variants or disagreements throughout the, the again, our two most oldest, most reliable. You should be like, well, 2,000, that's really, that's crazy. But then, of course, we're going to take that further and say, ultimately, we have 400,000 variants total. And that number, like, gets like, okay. I mean, again, it's 2.5 times the words. I mean, what, what's going on here? Of course, the big question that you have to ask is how do you get a variant? Well, of course, you have to have more than one text. If you have one copy of something, you don't have any variants because you just got one copy. You're like, okay, this is all we got, and this is, I just have to assume that this is true, and maybe it's wrong in some places, but I don't have anything to compare it to, so this is what I got. No variants. It's a completely variant-free text if I only have one copy. But if I have two copies, all of a sudden now, if there's a different letter here than there, if there's a different word here than there, if they skipped a line or didn't have this line, well, now I have to mark down, okay, I have a variant. And so the question comes, how many copies do we have? Like, how many copies are we talking about when we talk about just the Greek New Testament alone? And I'll say, for the Greek New Testament alone, we have about 6,000 copies. In fact, again, an exact total would be as of March of this year, 5,856 manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. As just for context, February 2016, three years ago, we had 5,839. We picked up 17 new manuscripts in the last three years. This is a constantly evolving uh, number. We're constantly finding more and more manuscripts dug away or, or buried away somewhere. And so as we find those 5,000, what's the update number? 5,856. Now, you should know, those are not 5,856 complete manuscripts. Only 1% of them are complete, about 55. The rest are all a portion. But it's also inaccurate to think that they're just little pieces, like, is it like a couple verses or a couple chapters. The average of those 5,856 manuscripts are 550 pages long. That's the average length of one of them. So we have as small as a potion stamp, as big as the full thing, 55 times, and the average, again, is somewhere 550 pages. It's not small. But then... That's actually only the Greek manuscripts. Because what happened in the second century? The language of the day moved from Greek to Latin. And as a whole, Istanbul was Constantinople. Istanbul is no longer, Istanbul is now Constantinople. Why they change it, we can't say, but people just liked it better that way. And so you have now a Latin translation. And so you say, all right, if we're going to have the language of the day be Latin, we're going to start translating the Bible in Latin in the second century. So if you take Latin manuscripts, how many do you have there? Of Latin alone, you get about another 10,000. But it doesn't stop there because, of course, the Bible is primarily a missional document.
document. It's a document that was copied for what purpose? To take somewhere else and to communicate to someone in another culture. And so you get it being transcribed in the second and third century. You get it being transcribed into, I mean, languages such as, let me find my list, Armenian, Coptic, Syriac, Ethiopian, Arabic, Hebrew, Aramaic, Slavic, Gothic, and more. So how many lesser tongues do you have? I mean, the lesser of the majority tongues do you have where it's been translated? You get about another eight to 9,000 manuscripts. I think the, what I suspect the answer is actually 8,100. And so if now we're doing the grand total and somebody has what they believe is a pretty strong exact grand total of the current state of our manuscripts, how many manuscripts do we have of the New Testament alone, Greek, Latin, and minor languages? 23,986 manuscripts. And even if that's where it stopped, or let's say this, let's say for whatever reason we went crazy and said, you know, let's just get all those 23,000 986 manuscripts in one room and there's a guy there and all of a sudden like he just you know starts a fire the sprinkler system comes on they melt away he's like no i lost 23,956 uh 986 manuscripts and every known manuscript of the new testament we have nothing to base it on it's actually not true because we have the writings of the early church fathers first and second century writers who were interacting with the text from very early on and they quote it before they interact with it. They say, hey, this is the section, and now, now here's my thoughts on it. And from quotations from early church fathers along, and they count them, how many times they appear in their writings, it's well over a million. You could reconstruct the entire New Testament based off of church fathers' quotations alone. Beyond that, the Bible was given to many cultures that were oral. And so they, like even the Jewish culture, every child memorized the scriptures. And then of those who are really good, they would then become either rabbis or teachers or they would become oral preservation societies where they would basically exist to preserve orally. And there is a continued transition from all cultures of these oral cultures still having people that have a passed down, memorized version of the New Testament in their own language. Also important to note, because the big thing is how many manuscripts do you have? And I'll give you some comparative data on like some Greek and uh, Roman philosophers here in a second, just to like, be like, eh, that's a lot, but like, what does that mean? But before I do, let me say this, because I also want to compare this fact. The other big thing is not just how many manuscripts you have, it's how close is the oldest manuscript to the estimation or the knowledge of what the original, when the original was written. In the Bible, you get two main thoughts. The more liberals tend to think it's about 30 to 35 or 30 to 40 years between the writing of John. The John, John wrote his gospel at the end of his life. It was probably one of the last penned, and so it's one of the oldest. And we have, we have a manuscript of John that, again, liberally uh, in scholarship, they would say is about 30 to 40 years. The most conservative scholars are going to say about 10 to 20 years. So a little bit of a gap. Again, comparative data. All right, again, that's kind of interesting, Kent, but I have no context. Give me context. Um, well, we just simply have to ask, how do we know what first century Rome was like? We know because of the writings of Livia, Tacitus, and Suetonius. These are the three most important Roman writers. And the, again, we don't actually have the, the originals, but we do have manuscript copies of the originals that were passed down. And so how many do we have of these people? Well, the first two, Livia, we have 27 manuscripts. Tacitus, we have three. 
He's actually arguably the most important. His writings are the most detailed. We have three manuscripts. And there's not a single person being like, well, we don't have no idea what Rome's like. I mean, like, we got three copies of this piece. I can pair it here and here to the original, and now I have a pretty good idea of what was actually said. If you take those three Roman, and I'll give you the two leading Greek. So you got uh, Livia, Tacitus, Suetonius, and I'll give you the, Greek, the two most important uh, Greek uh, writers and that we understand their culture from, Herodias and Thucydides. Those five writers, all the manuscripts, let's just pile them all together. Five guys, 400 manuscripts. And that scene is awesome. If you took their manuscripts and stacked them on top of each other, it would be five, or sorry, four feet tall. You have a four-foot stack of thin little paper. You're like, I mean, there's tons we know about Greece and about Rome through a four-foot stack of thin little paper. I mean, that's a ton. If you were to stack the manuscripts of the Bible, thin little pieces of paper on the ground, it would reach over a mile high. Again, that's important because when you're trying to figure out, okay, what, how do I get closest to the original? You want a lot of different ones. They say compare to here, to here, to here, to here, to here, to here. And these 17 have something different than these 70 do. So most likely we're closer on this side than that one. And then of course, as you're Thinking through, of course, we have to say, of those, I already told you, we have about a 20, to, uh, we have somewhere between a 10 to 40 year gap from our oldest original, uh, or our oldest manuscript of John to the original of John, the estimated time of his origin, which is about 90 to 180. What's the biggest gap amongst those writers, the other five? The closest they have is a 300 year gap. But we're not really that concerned because. We feel like we have their words. We have them pretty well, at least. And so, ultimately, though, uh, let's just answer this question. Why do we get these copies? Like, why do we have all these copies? What was the point of this? Again, remember, the New Testament specifically, but really the whole Bible, the church itself is a missional movement. It was made to be spread across everywhere. We see it intentionally happening in Acts and, of course, the workings of Paul. I mean, they're taking it from just one room of about 20 people in the upper room in Jerusalem, and it goes across the known world. And how do you do that? Well, you've got to take some transmission of information to people to be like, hey, I want to tell you about Jesus, and I want to show you all the things he did and all the things he said, and I don't want to mess it up. And so you get people like most scholars think Mark is the first gospel. It's not the one that comes first, comes second. It's the shortest, but they think that he wrote his first. And that's actually why they think it, one of the reasons they think it's the, the first is because it is the shortest. And then, of course, Matthew and Luke write somewhat in close time to Mark, but they actually take a lot of Mark. I mean, so much of Mark shows up in Matthew and Luke, but now there's all this stuff that they said. But, but I, I, Matthew's like, I want to communicate to Jews primarily. I want to teach Jews who Jesus is. So you have all these moments where like Matthew wants to compare Jesus to Moses because the Jews really had a lot of stock in Moses. And so he's like, I'm going to show you how Jesus like, you know, fled to Egypt and it was called out of Egypt just like Moses. 
on out of water, and there was a void, and like there's all these moments, and there's a there's parting of all these moments to like say like Jesus is the new Moses, and so I want to take what Mark told you, but I want to add these other stories he didn't bother saying because he was talking to somebody else, and I'm talking to you, and you need to know this. And then you get Luke, who's like is a Gentile. I mean, he's a non-Christian altogether, but he becomes a Christian, and by basically going around, he he says in his book, I had this benefactor, a Theophilus, who basically paid for me to do a research project, and he said just go around all the cities and talk to all the people that knew Jesus. So he talked with all the apostles. He travels with the apostles. And not only that, he goes to every city that Jesus was. And that place, they would have had an oral preservation society, either an individual or group that would have just been basically, they exist to like, if anyone comes and being like, what happened with this Jesus guy? That's me. And there I come. And I've got story after story after story to tell you. That's why John, at the end of his gospel says, this is just a fraction of what the guy did. If everything were to be taken down, I guess, suppose it would fill all of the rooms and all the books of all the world. And of course, he's being a little hyperbolic. But his point is that, hey, this, this is how we took the information, eyewitnesses' accounts of Jesus, both the apostles, those who saw it in towns and were holding on to it in these societies. And then as they collected those works, then if you want to take it to another city, you don't take the original. You make a copy. You handwrite it down, and then you send that person out. And then somebody says, well, I want to take it the other direction. I'll tell you what they didn't do. They didn't go to the guy who made the copy, who now is a long ways away, copied the copy, and then turned around and went the other direction a long ways away. No, they went to the original and made another copy based off the original and went the other direction. In fact, we know through just the way that the gospel and writings were distributed that there were about seven, I think, major distribution cities. I mean, this is kind of like, these were the seven Amazon centers of the Bible. They all got one. They're very excited about it. Uh, and it, it improved their house values, like out the wazoo. Either way, you had Alexandria, Egypt, Antioch, Syria, Rome, and Asia Minor. Asia Minor, a lot of your minor cities like uh, Philippi and Ephesus. And so of those places, they become like, again, your distribution centers. And so they had an either an original or a very early copy in each of those places. And they would continually be writing and sending out manuscripts from those places. And then you get the writings of Paul. And of course, the writings of Paul even say at the end of them, at the end of Colossians, he says, hey, make sure after you've read this letter that you get it to the Laodiceans. And make sure you read the letter from Laodicea. Because Paul, like all of his letters, circulated. Because he's like, hey, there's specific things I want to say to the Colossians, but I think everybody should know a little of it. There's some things I'm saying just to them, yes. But there's some stuff that everybody needs to know. The Corinthians, yeah, there's going to be some. I'm going to say, hey, you guys need to calm down on that whole guy dating his mother-in-law thing. That's not for all you guys over here. But there's some general truths that's good for everyone to know. And so how did they circulate around? They got the letter. They read the letter. And before passing it on, they copied a manuscript from the original and passed it along. This is the biggest breakdown of the telephone game analogy. Because how does the telephone game work? You get to hear it once. And then based off of that one thing, you now have to create a copy. And then that person can't, doesn't go back to the original. They go to now the copy, and they say a copy of the copy. And that person doesn't go to the original again. They continually, every time it translates, 
you're getting further and further away. Rather than continually making thousands upon thousands and thousands of copies from either the originals or the very earliest manuscripts, you'd have a lot higher accuracy if everybody in the telephone game went to the first person and they just whispered it 20 times and then 20 people said, what did you hear? You get a couple of them. They're like, what, what was that kid thinking? He's way off. You know, and that kid just, he's the cuss word kid. Let's see what you want from it. But oh, by and large, you could take 22 accounts of that whispered phrase and get to the original. But some of us, let's just, let's just go into the devil's advocate place. Because again, we're dealing with real scholars that are presenting real information. I want to give them their full due as best as I can present it. Some of us are just scared that there's variants to begin with. Because even if there's just one variant and one text that said, by the way, Jesus is not divine. And he did not die for your sins. Don't go there. I would want to know that. I'd want to judge based off of the, that information. How, where that came from, when it surfaced, how much I think it's accurate. So what, what's the nature of these variants? Let's talk about a few things. Um, there's four categories in which they've classified all variants. First category, the simplest category, spelling differences. Not even spelling errors, necessarily, but spelling differences. Because there's multiple ways to spell some words. We know this by both the Greek and the English version of John. If your name is John, in English you can be J-O-N or J-O-H-N. I mean, we've got like tons of Hannahs at Soma, and I have to constantly, like when I write, it, be like H or no H at the end. Are you a palindrome or are you not a palindrome? I don't know. And in Greek, the name John can be spelled with one N or new, is the Greek letter, or two news. And so if you just take this category, not only that, but again, there's other words kind of like similar to British spellings of our words like color or honor, which they would add a U where we do not, unless you want to be all Euro cool. And if you do that, you can have multiple ways to even spell other words. And so you say, okay, then let's just, I mean, the spelling things, they don't touch meaning at all. You can still understand what's being said. Most of it's preferential or just obvious that guy's missed a letter there, uh, but it's the same word. Let's just rule those out. 400,000 variances, rule out the spelling errors, you eliminate 70%. Bart Ehrman never says that. He never says that in the interview. He knows it. He's a PhD in this. This is not one rogue scholar being like, well, 70, I mean, yeah, there's more variations than words, but 70% of them are spelling errors and make no difference on the meaning whatsoever. That's not just one rogue scholar. Everyone knows that who's in this field. But that doesn't sell books. I tip my cards to my suspicion. Category two, after you take out the spelling errors, you get um, untranslatable differences. So anytime you translate a language, you're getting a little bit distorted, of course, because you have to separate from a culture that made that language, and they have certain rules that other cultures don't have. And Greek is a highly inflected language, which means this. Word order has no meaning to them. It's all about word ending. If I take a sentence, I can put the words in any order I want, but based off the meaning of those words, it's the exact same translated phrase in English, no matter how many times you translate it. So I can take a sentence like, Jesus loves Paul, 
And I can translate that in any order. But not only that, but before I even just like kind of go through what you can get from here, you can now put on another layer of the indefinite article. The word the in Greek, preferentially, you can put it anywhere but next to any noun. Anytime you want. You can. You don't have to. So again, I can do Jesus loves Paul, or I can say Jesus loves the Paul, or the Jesus loves Paul, or the Jesus loves the Paul, or Paul loves Jesus, the Paul Jesus loves, the Paul the Jesus loves, loves the Jesus Paul, Paul Jesus the loves. I mean, it's just, you can go on and on for 500 variations of those three words every single time you translate it or you say it, no matter which five, uh, one of the 500 you pick, they will hear Jesus loves Paul. And so you insert that kind of language and people are now copying it down by hand in that language and sometimes orally hearing it and putting it in whatever order doesn't matter just as long as the word endings are accurate. Category three, meaningful but not viable. First Thessalonians 2.7 is a good example of this uh, where Paul says, we became gentle among you. There's... Uh, a legitimate amount of manuscripts that say we became little children among you. That's because the word gentle is apioi and the word little children is napioi. And I'm going to butcher this. What is this? Agananthane. Yes, agananthane is the word that precedes it. And so if you have a word that ends with an N and a word following it that could or could not end with an N, agathanane apoi, apioi, or agathanane napioi, it's like Dimitri Martin where he says like, ATM machine, and they say, like, well, when you say ATM machine, you're saying automated transmitted machine, machine. He said, no, you didn't hear me. I said, ATM machine. Like, if that's the moment that's going on here, that that's truly what we could have. And so, yeah, did he say gentle? Did he say little children? We don't know. There's even one translation that says, agathanen hippioi, we became horses among you. And again, there's just like, bad days of you know, I just looked up at the wrong time, got distracted, thought about a horse, and there you go. We're off and running in 1 Thessalonians 2.7. But it's one instance. You get rid of it. It's obviously wrong. It's meaningful. It changes the meaning, but it's not viable. Last category. Oh, before I do, those three categories. Spelling, untranslatable differences of Greek, and meaningful but non-variable variances. Of those 400,000 variants, that comprises 99% of them. We're down to 1%. And this 1% matters. This 1% is now, group four, the meaningful and viable. So there's multiple translations that change the meaning, and there's an argument for viability of multiple translations. I'll give you two. I'll give you my favorite, and then I'll give you the most serious and profound one to deal with. Here's the favorite, Revelations 13, 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who is understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Now, everybody in our culture knows the number of beast is 666. You don't like to like, have your calculator rest on 666. You don't like the time. Like, we've, we've probably just made up our whole way of time, so it would never be 666. That'd freak us out. And, of course, you know that not from even reading the Bible. I mean, maybe. Maybe, maybe you just were into heavy metal at one point, and then you just know that's the mark of the beast. But then, a 11th century man of, by the last name von Tischendorf, which, yes, he is the star of the 11th century reality show, Keeping Up with Von Tischendorf, <laughs> discovered a fifth 
century manuscript of Revelation. At the time, I believe it was the oldest manuscript of Revelation. And it said this verse, except it said the number of the beast is 616. And all of a sudden, our oldest, most reliable translation has a different number. But again, it's just one, so you toss it out. You keep it in the back of your mind. In fact, a lot of these Bibles will have a footnote. We'll say down in the footnotes, the number of the beast is possibly in some manuscripts, 616. And it does say some manuscripts because here's what happened. Oxford finds an older version of Revelation, a very small piece, but it has this verse. And Daniel B. Wallace himself goes to Oxford, looks at it. He says, hey, how many people have come to look at and examine this? They said, including you? Yeah, one, okay. So he looked at it. Sure enough, the mark of the beast. Now two of our most reliable oldest manuscripts, 616. What does this mean for heavy metal music? Like, you know. <laughs> This was never the real number. It was just some made-up number. Like, what in the world? I just have 666. This is so lame. I mean, what if God did that just to tick off Iron Maiden Slipknot? You know, like, he's just like, you guys are going to be all satanic, and I'm just going to mess with you one day. You know, you know what the mark of the, you know, and like, you, like so the number of 666 is actually ponies. And, <laughs> but here's the reality. There's not a church in this world. There's not a a denomination of Christianity that will say, will stand up and say, I believe in God the Father, the creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus, the Son, the Savior who died and rose again so that we might follow in his footsteps, the first fruits of resurrection. And I believe the number of the beast is 666. It's just like not to change any essential doctrine of Christianity. But let me give you the most profound one. 1 John 5, 6 through 8. This is as as deep as it gets. It'd be between this or the extended, version, extended ending of Mark or, of course, the woman caught in adultery. A lot of people are suspect that's not in her earliest manuscripts, but it, it's left in. It was in earlier versions, but a lot of Bibles have put brackets around it. We don't know if this is there or not. We're doing this in plain sight, which is helpful. But this one, you might have a footnote about it. You might not. First John 5, 6 through 8. I'll read the, uh, what you will have in your Bible, and then I will write, read the one with the, uh, that a few manuscripts had. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. It's a tough text to begin with. It's really tough to know exactly, like, is the water baptism? Is the blood crucif the crucifixion? I mean, what's, what's going on here? Is, but ultimately, we, we tried to figure out what this verse is saying. I think we have a lot to it. But, of course, it was only controversial because there existed manuscripts that said this. I'll read now uh, the augmented version. Uh, here we go. Got an underline the addition. This is he who came by the water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify. Addition. There are three that testify in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And these three are one. And there are three that testify on earth. End of addition the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. What just happened? We had at least a manuscript that had an inserted text that was basically giving you an apologetic for the Trinity. But again, because we were able to have multiple cities sending out, we could even now track which city that came from if it was widespread enough. And of course, if it wasn't the major one, we'd go downstream until we like, here's where the variant showed up. And because it's that questionable, we take it out. 
it becomes a footnote. Without this verse, is there no ability to discern if we have a trinity in the Bible? No. This might have been the most explicit version of a of, of verse saying it, but many people write about the doctrine of the trinity, and they well have long left this verse out of their thinking. Does this change what we should believe as a church? No. This is the biggest one. And I get it. Like, it's there. Maybe it bothers you that some scribe thought he had the audacity to put it in. It's very possible, multiple theories that say many of these additions were just notes that the scribe was writing to himself. Sometimes we're like, all of a sudden you're reading in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, and all of a sudden, like, some paraphrasal of psalms break in that have a lot to do with that text in Jeremiah but got infused in the text over time. There's a theory that they said maybe those were just margin notes that eventually people stuck in the middle because there were people saying like, hey, when you read Jeremiah and you think of idols, think of the psalms when it says worship the one true God. And they thought like, man, I'm reading this and I'm thinking of Deuteronomy. I want to bring Deuteronomy in. I want to bring the psalms in. I want to bring all this. And all of a sudden you have some texts that kind of get mashed together and get mangled. But here's what's not true. Here's the irresponsible conclusion to draw. We have no idea what this book says. That's irresponsible. It's not that we have 90% of the Bible. 10% just is gone. It's that we have about 103% of the Bible. There's some things that are still true. Or maybe the whole, what's the middle number of the mark of the beast? We don't know that changed no meaning. And Bart Ehrman knows this. In the appendices of misquoting Jesus, who changed the Bible and why, they include an interview with Ehrman in which they ask him directly, like, what's the big deal about all this? Does there any major doctrines affected? And he says this, no essential Christian doctrines are affected by the manuscript tradition of the scriptures. He knows that. He put it in the appendices. But he said it on the Daily Show and Colbert Report to a group of people, most of which will probably never read the book, much less the appendices. They'll have to buy it either way. Oh, gosh. I got to end here. What about the Old Testament? Sorry, oh, gosh, it was about the time, not anything else. <laughs> oh, oh I, I split back open. All right. Uh, uh, the bad day to say that. All right. Um, what about the Old Testament? For the longest time, our most reliable text of the Old Testament was the Masoretic text, which was preserved by a group of the, uh, called the Masoretes, which were a Jewish group basically devoted to preserving one specific version of the text. And they just and they counted every letter. They knew the middle letter of the Torah. They just knew every letter. They knew every word. They knew every note, everything that probably, I mean, we don't know if they knew stuff had been added, but it seems that they did and just preserve the additions because they're like, whatever happened to it before now, we're preserving it exactly as it is now. And that was from 1000 AD. The problem is that's the Old Testament. The Old Testament goes way BC. And so we use that for the longest time. And then we discover the Septuagint, which is a Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament commissioned by Alexander the Great in about 225 BC when he wanted to have a Greek version of the Old Testament. And it's Scholarly enough people can break down where the Greek and what Hebrew manuscript is underneath it. And we also get the Dead Sea Scrolls, where a couple shepherds hanging out. They say Dead Sea or Red Sea, regardless. Dead Sea. All right. Uh, they're hanging out. They're shepherding the sheep. One throws a rock to potentially guide a sheep away from the edge of the cliff, or maybe he's just tossing into caves because that's what you do. And 
they hear a shattering of clay. And they go and investigate, and they find the most robust findings of Old Testament and New Testament manuscripts from a group of Jews that during the Maccabean era, the whole Hanukkah thing, they're like, we don't like the Maccabeans. If they're in charge, we're out. We're going out, and we're creating our own society, and we're bringing tons of manuscripts, and they preserved there beautifully. And all of a sudden, those come, they're dated at 1 AD, or maybe as far back as to equal the Septuagint at 225 BC. And so all of a sudden, we get a thousand-year leap backwards at least to figure out how the telephone game has been leading us right or wrong. Our Laird Harris, who was um, comparing Isaiah 38 through 66 from those scrolls, says this. A comparison of Isaiah 53 that shows that only 17 letters differ from the Masoretic text. Ten of these are mere spelling differences, uh, or differences in spelling, like our honor and the English honor with a U and produce no change in the meaning at all. Four more are very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction, and, which are stylistic rather than subjective or substantive. And other three, the other three letters are the Hebrew word for light. This word was added to the text by someone after they shall see in verse 11. Out of 166 words in this chapter, only this one word is really in question, and it does not at all change the meaning of the passage. We are told by biblical scholars that this is typical of the whole manuscript of Isaiah. So a big jump back. 17 little spelling errors. The word light is in question. Why? Because God in his infinite power and wisdom preserved and even clarified a text, not by continually dropping it every generation, but by using the messy reality of the human process so that now with more certainty than possibly we did if all of a sudden somebody just found a, a glowing tablet in a bush somewhere, we know exactly how we got to where we're at with these. And we know that when we read exactly what Laird was working on in Isaiah 53, 3 through 6, we read this. And this was found thousands of years later, or thousands of years earlier, the oldest surviving copy of Isaiah. What did Isaiah want us to know? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was uh, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And his wounds, by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Constantine did not make Jesus divine. We have a copy of John 150 years before the Council of Nicaea, and they've broken down the Greek. It's John 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's exactly the same. Because God wanted to communicate to a people through thousands of years, multiple generations, multiple cultures. I made you, and I made you beautiful, but you have walked away through sin and entered death, and you can come home. I want you to know that I've sent a hero that is waiting to bring you back in as a son or daughter, and that message has been consistent since at least 1 AD till now. The King James Bible is written off of seven manuscripts. 
your Bible in your hands, no matter which translation you have, is compiled off of a thousand times more than that. Are we getting further in the telephone game or are we getting right on? Maybe we're not 100% yet, but we know enough. Let's end with communion at a time where we take this truth that we now know that has been around for generations of a Savior who would come and die on behalf of sin and death. And then we would take a bread and cup because the night before he dies, he says, hey, remember this. This is your new Passover meal. Remember that I saved you out of death and slavery and sin. And so every time you get together, take the bread. And as we do it here, we tear it off and dip it in the cup. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, thank you for dignifying humanity by communicating through us, but also thank you for your divine way how there's obvious times where you have preserved this in spite of us to speak to us of a message that is being spoken in 66 love letters like Larry Crabb says, of a hero that has come to save the people that had turned away in darkness, death, and sin. And so, Lord, let us not use this as um, ammo to go debate people with, but rather let us let this kindle the desires and affections of our heart as we worship a God who had a very clear message and has preserved it and is the best news in the world and it has been here for generations. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.